This week, we're talking to Stephanie Tate about the view from rock bottom on Ask Science Mike. You got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, I'll talk anyway. You got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life, or at least I usually do, but this week we're going to talk to one of my favorite people, Stephanie Tate, about her new book, because reading's important, so what do you say? Let's get it started. As I mentioned in the intro... Uh, this week's a little different. We're going to talk with Stephanie Tate, who's one of my favorite people. Stephanie probably doesn't know this, but as I started confronting and becoming aware of ableism in my life, and then further down the road became aware that I'm an adult with autism spectrum disorder, uh, Stephanie's work was one of the go-to sources for me to learn about ableism and its impacts on society and learn how disability communities are structured and how disability advocacy happens. And uh, I have been digitally following her for some time. And uh, if you are not familiar with Stephanie, I'm sorry, uh, but you will be now. Uh, Stephanie is an author, speaker, and disability advocate and trauma survivor. And she aims to do what she believes is sorely lacking in our trending conversations around Christianity, to partner sound theology and practice with the unashamed acceptance of struggle in the present tense. Her new book, The View from Rock Bottom, examines the influences of the prosperity gospel in the modern church and urges us to a deeper and more robust theology of suffering. Uh, Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us on Ask Science Mike. Thanks for having me. Now you got me all emotional. That was really sweet. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. Doggone it. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I hate how often that, like, uh, my earnest appreciation for people makes them uncomfortable at the very beginning of the show. <laughs> well, it, it kind of threw me off kilter a little bit, but it was very nice. I had no idea that my work meant that much to you because I look up to your work. So I had always found it an honor to even be considered a peer or a friend. But to know that you learned from me, that's I don't even really have a way to describe that. Uh, when I left Twitter for a while, uh, I cheated because I would get on Twitter and look only at specific profiles. So I wouldn't go to twitter.com. I would go to twitter.com slash and then different people. There were about a dozen of those and you were one of that dozen. Oh, <laughs> so. well, when you left Twitter, it, it got sad. Like I'm kind of glad when you're back a little bit. Back, I, it was a sad my, place. I keep a pinky toenail on Twitter at all times now. So that's, uh, that's I feel awesome. like all my favorite people leave but not just leave, but leave at the same time. It like goes in shifts. Like you'll leave and Nish Wyseth will leave and Nicole Cliff will leave. But everybody will leave all as a chunk. And I'm like, all that's left are guys that want to yell at me in my DMs or like literal Nazis. So literal. I think I just need to read the room and leave when you guys leave and get on this rotation with everybody. I mean, it's oh. the only way I've found to like, have a healthy relationship with that form of media is to just leave it pretty often and like recharge yeah. and then come back and 
wade through the Nazis again. Like that's the that's the difficult thing I think about our social relationships that are centered on social media today is there's so much profound value. Like I have learned more on Twitter maybe than any other media platform ever. But to mm. get to those amazing voices, you have to move through crowds of neo-Nazis. And it's just such a bizarre dynamic. Um, well, and it's really hard for people like me who are chronically ill because, I mean, I didn't set out to build a platform or, you know, be a, an author or a speaker or any of this stuff. It's sort of sprung organically out of the fact that uh, I'm the world's most extroverted extrovert. And yet I'm also chronically ill and disabled. So I spend a lot of time effectively bedridden or stuck at home, especially in the winter. And so social media sort of became this natural outlet where I could find a way to try to connect with other humans and without having to get up and go expose myself to germs or push my body past what it could handle that day. And I didn't mean to have like connections with strangers. It really started the way most people's social media started, just friend the people you know on Facebook. But um, I think it really boiled down to, I have unusually attractive kids. So I used to take a lot of pictures of them for Instagram and people would be like, oh, these kids are cute. I'm gonna follow your account. And after a while, I had this huge following on Instagram and I was writing a lot of thoughts on Facebook because I had very little in-person chances to discuss them with people. So I sort of blurted my whole world out in little almost microblogging, if you will, on Facebook and these pictures on Instagram. And somebody came to me back when I was still a professional photographer at a conference and said, you realize if you put those two things together, that's literally a blog. That's, I mean, you can monetize that. You can turn that into a job. You can, you can do something with this. Uh, and when, when you are chronically ill and disabled, it's difficult to find work that can fit your limitations sometimes. Uh, and it's not that easy to get on disability. I've never qualified despite losing many jobs when I couldn't show up consistently anymore. Uh, so it's hard to find a source of income. So blogging sort of fell into my lap as maybe this is a way I can be a person who's stuck at home and monetize my thoughts somehow. So I came into this world via the mommy blogging route, but I didn't mean to do that. That was just sort of me trying to find connection on social media. And so now that it's become this garbage place filled with so much hate and literal Nazis and people screaming at each other without really making any kind of connections. The people that are going to get hurt by this the most are people like me who depend on this for some sort of connection to the outside world when they can't physically get up and go out and find it. So it's hard because on the one hand, I understand why people walk away. But on the other hand, like, I wish there was a better way to fight to fix these places and address these issues somehow. And I don't know what those answers are. I honestly don't. I understand all the reasons it's hard to censor crap content. I do. But abandoning ship leaves a lot of people like me feeling like, where are we going to connect with other human beings in a meaningful way if we're sort of trapped in our houses, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, one focus for me has been trying to create more um, alternatives to the big corporate platforms. I actually don't think social media is inherently toxic. I think the algorithms that curate what's 
presented on social media to make the most engagement so the companies make the most money creates the toxicity. So I've been experimenting a lot with different open source social media platforms to try to figure out if there's a plausible way to make social communities where the participants are in charge and own the platform. Um, Mm. And I've started experimenting with that with the litter just a little bit, but I actually have aspirations to create like, you know, what if we had a a Twitter-like instance where, uh, you know, all the people are on it controlled that instance and set the conduct policies and and uh we didn't Hmm. rely on some semi-benevolent or malevolent corporate overlord to decide who gets to stay we could just say guess what we don't allow nazi speech here which is actually what we've done on uh the liturgist social media instances we've just said hey no nazi stuff allowed we are explicitly uh, lgbtq affirming you don't have to believe that but this is not a space you can talk about it if you're not and, um, you know, this is a place that is, is inherently um, and explicitly accommodating people of different disability levels. And that's an expect- expectation to be a part of this community. Um, and the more I spend time in spaces like that, the more shocking it is for me, you know, when I get on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, mm. Because their goal is not to curate the best community. Like their goal is to make the most money and often they make the yeah. most money when the community is the most toxic. That's a tirade I, I don't want to go down though because it's too far from what I want to talk about today. Um, <laughs> what I'd like to get back to is this theme of like disability and then uh, income, like the way our society is structured. You're mm-hmm. valuable if you make money. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think that's an overstatement. I think some people listening might say, Mike, you can't say that. But I, I just mean, if you look at what it takes to have shelter and food and safety, our society offers that to people who can make money and people who can make money are people who can contribute to like a system of capitalism. That's the way we structure yes. it. And so you're in this intersection here um, where you're an amazing teacher. Uh, but your disability means like it's hard for you. You're, 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 you're chronically ill. And how has that felt? Like, so you've launched this book and I've been watching, you're doing like a lot of podcasts right now. And I, I yeah. so appreciate that you like took the time to do this show, but, um, how has that felt? How has that been for you and your energy level? Uh, to write a book and be on this virtual book tour, how are you feeling? Um, <laughs> I'll be brutally honest. It's rough. It's really rough. I took two different extensions on getting the book turned in itself to the publisher. So the book is delayed just about a year from when it was supposed to release um, because it's just, it's unpredictable. In the beginning, it was 100% that I didn't recover as quickly or as much when I started treating Lyme as I had expected. Um, I had sort of fantasized that I was going to start treatment. We finally knew what was really the core root of my problems. We were going to get this therapy and I was just going to rebound and have my life back. And it, it didn't really work out that way. So the first time I had to take an extension because I was just physically not capable to really get down and do the work. Uh, the second time I had to take an extension was more because our life basically blew up in the middle of 
writing the book, we almost lost our house because of medical bills. And so the plan we came up with to save it was essentially to remodel our kitchen ourselves, doing our own labor so that we could get the value up of our house and refinance. So I had to take a second, you know, uh, extension, which basically wrecked me. And I wrote that book pretty much in the course of a summer to get it turned in on time, which was a lot on my body. Um, and I don't know if I ever really fully recovered from that. I've kind of been hanging in the best I could since then. Uh, since launching, I have done mostly podcasts right now. And it's not just because travel is hard on my body. It's actually predominantly because I've been getting a lot of inquiries uh, to come promote the book in person at places. But they always, I would say 90 to 95% of them seem legitimately surprised that there's a cost involved in asking me to do that. Mm. Uh, when I present my travel costs to them, uh, and I've been waiving my speaking fee actually for any event that's sort of book tour, if you will, like for promoting the book right now, uh, which means I'm essentially offering to work for free. There's no profit margin for me if I waive the speaking fee. Right. And I present my travel costs and 90 to 95% of the time right now, the responses seem to be sort of, oh, like, doesn't your publisher pay for that? Which is no, that that doesn't happen. And, <laughs> no, it does not. Or 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 B, <laughs> the worst one is they sort of act like they were doing me a favor by giving me a chance to promote my book. So they're really taken aback that I would charge for my time to come speak to their church or their group or whatever they're hiring me for. Uh, so I would actually love to get out and and share the book with more people travel wise, but right now it's less because my, you know, because of my body issues and more because I can't afford to go pay to work. Like that's, I already don't make much of an, an income doing this. I certainly can't afford to also go pay to do my job either. So the podcasts have been great because not only do they let me work from home, but you know, they don't involve having to travel anywhere, but it's more of an issue of I can't afford to go out to places right now unless people actually pay me uh, what it costs to come there. Mm. Mm. It's frustrating. It's it's sort of this weird intersection of, on the one hand, um, people understand that I'm disabled and they're they're very understanding of that. But on the flip side, there's still sort of this expectation that I should be able to uh, support myself entirely from income that they're not willing to offer for my work. So it kind of just goes around and around of like, yes, you're disabled and that's sad and you have these big medical bills and we understand that. And so you should definitely try to get some work to try to cover your bills. But on the flip side, I'm doing this work and sort of being told, well, but that doesn't count. Like not that work, that's more of a hobby. You need a real job to support your, you know, your speaking, your teaching, your writing. Uh, you know, maybe you'll sell enough books to cover your income, which for the record, that also never happens. So, and because there are so many other authors who are working other jobs or who, um, and, you know, for Christian women, a lot of them have spouses who can support them in a lot of cases, people like me often can't survive in this industry or their voices get pushed out because if we can't make a living doing this work, 
I can't just go pick up a quote unquote real day job to support this. This is my job. This is my attempt to do something from within my limitations. And so if I can't find a way to support myself while doing this, then that's it. It just sort of ends and I stop teaching and that and that's it. I'm just done. Thank you for sharing that, Stephanie. That was not something I was expecting to share. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, I've had approximately three more of them just in the last week alone. So it's kind of on the front of my brain that I get very excited when people offer me opportunities. I'm excited to share this message. My worst fear is that I will have put three years of work into this book and it will just sit in boxes somewhere in a warehouse because nobody knows about it. So I want to get out and spread the word. I want to connect with people that will respond to this message. And it was always a dream to meet people in person and get to share some of those sacred pieces of our pain stories. I love when I have the opportunity to do that, to hug someone in person who's offered me a piece of that story is, is huge. But if I can't afford, get on the plane and go do that, it all just kind of comes to a grinding halt at this point. Mm -hmm. let's, uh, let's roll the clock back. So you've got three years of work into this book. What made yeah. you decide like you wanted to write a book? Where, 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 was, where did the genesis of The View from Rock Bottom begin? Well, technically, when I, I'll tell you a little story. When I was little, my parents gave me an old typewriter. Uh, I set it up in my room and I decided that I was going to be a journalist. So I typed up fake little newspapers uh, with totally fake made up stories. And I'm pretty sure this is illegal, but I used to go around on my bike and slip them into people's mailboxes at random. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they appreciated that at all. But um, this this is sort of how it started. I've always I've always written. Uh, I have probably a sixth grade teacher that would say that she knew that this was going to be what I did. Uh, I didn't know that though because back then I was very practical and I thought, you know what, your only choices to really make a living at writing are like journalism, maybe editing. Like I didn't see a real career path here, so I sort of pushed it aside as something I did as a hobby. And, and left it at that and pursued sort of more real jobs as I saw them. Uh, so it's always been something I've done. I just never knew that I was going to want to write a book and get published like this until a few years back when I was actually working on a totally different project entirely. I was working on a Bible study for special needs parents. Um, I have a son who's autistic and because I'm also disabled, it, there was sort of this disconnect for me with that community. Um, I got sucked into the autism mom thing for a little while, and it never really sat right with me. There's a lot of weird tropes that go on there, a lot of weird ableist disrespect where parents really dominate the narrative and don't listen to actually autistic people. So I was working on this project, and I was doing the lifestyle mommy blogging thing, and I got an offer to go speak at a Christian university in Eugene. And I had a talk prepared. It was really fun. It was really upbeat. And we had suffered our seventh miscarriage in the year leading up to this talk. And I had a night where I don't really know what came over me, but I posted something on my blog that was not 
in brand that was basically should have been a journal entry and not a blog post. Mm. And I shared it with the world and got a phone call from the guy who I was my contact at the college the next day, basically saying, so I read your blog and I was pretty sure I was getting fired and they were going to ask me to not come speak. But instead, what happened was he said, I don't normally do this and I never tell my speakers what to speak about. But if there's any way you'd consider it, I really think you need to speak from that. I really think there's something in your pain story. There's something in the way that you're so willing to open up these wounds and talk about them in the context of faith and spirituality that our students would respond to that. They get plenty of upbeat, fun, inspirational messages. This would be something different. We don't get that a lot. So if you'd be willing to, do you want to come at this from a different angle? And the theme of their chapels that year was uh, sacred. And I was like, I don't really know how I tie suffering to sacred. And so I just sort of did a word study on suffering and wrote out some random notes and some verses, literally titled it Sacred Suffering because I had no idea what to do with it. Showed up with basically those loose notes and a few slides of Bible verses and just started talking. And what came out was 35 minutes of material that I have listened to the recording and I honestly don't remember saying a lot of that. It was sort of a weird borderline Pentecostal spiritual experience where what came out of me was something very special that I have no explanation for. There was a lot of crying in that room. There was also a lot of laughing in that room. It was a really unique time. And I walked away from it feeling like, wow, that was cool. And I thought that was the end of it. But almost a year later from that talk, somebody reached out to me via Twitter and said, I was at that talk a year ago. I'm still chewing on it. Like there was a lot there to unpack. And I was an adjunct professor at that school, but now I have a job with this publishing company that publishes Christian books. Have you ever considered writing a book? And I was like, I don't have an agent. I'm 50 steps back. And he was like, I work in covers. I can't actually get you a publishing deal anyways. But how would you feel about me bringing the recording of that talk and the link to your blog to an acquisitions editor? And we just see where it goes. And two weeks later, I had a book deal in front of me. It was the craziest series of events. I still have no literary agent. I still, you know, I'm like a baby. I've skipped 18 steps and I don't know what I'm doing in this industry. Mm. But I knew that this was the book that I was really meant to write. I tossed everything that I had been working on before and I threw myself 100% into this project because it felt like a culmination of, like, this is really my heart song. This is what it looks like for me to walk through the world as a chronically ill disabled person who still considers herself a Christian, but whose faith looks absolutely nothing like what it did uh, when I was raised in this faith. I don't consider myself an evangelical anymore, but that's probably the community that my theology partially lines up with still, I guess. Um, but it looks so different from the way that I was raised. And more importantly, it looks so different from the way I expected it would look as an adult. Like my life has just not gone remotely the way I saw it going. And yet I'm still 100% a person of faith. And I didn't know how to sort of rectify these two ideas and put them together and explain how I got here. And so that's sort of where the book came from was I know there are other people out there like me who feel a little bit spiritually homeless and who don't really know where they fit anymore because they can't really line up with the faith of their youth, but they're not really ready to walk out and empty the pews or that that doesn't really fit for them either. 
So I wanted to put something out there for people like me. I wanted to put something out there that was sort of a middle way of here's a very emotional in some ways, but also very logical book that lays out, you know, here's a lot of Bible verses in there of how I came to the place I came um, with sort of my new understanding of what it looks like to leave room for suffering and leave room for grief and leave room for unanswered questions and not have trite explanations for everything all the time. So in some ways, I always knew I was going to be an author. And in other ways, it just sort of fell into my lap, which is a crazy story. Ask Science Mike is made possible by the support of a few key sponsors. I'd like to tell you, first of all, about a company called BetterHelp. If there's anything I've learned in the last two years, it's the vital importance that professional mental health support plays in quality of life and in growth. I mean, is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I've been through so much of that lately. And the great news is we live in an era where there's more mental health support options than we've ever had before. And BetterHelp Online Counseling can be there for you. I've been using it for a couple of months now. And what BetterHelp does is allow you to connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. That means you can meet with your therapist at home, in a spare room at the office, anywhere that you have the space and the time and need the support of a professional counselor. You can get through BetterHelp. It means you get help on your own time at your own pace. You get to schedule video or phone sessions, plus text and chat with your therapist. And because there are over 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states who specialize in all kinds of mental health challenges, depression, stress, anxiety, sleep issues, trauma, anger management, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and matters involving LGBTQ identity, there is someone who can help you with any challenge that you're faced with. And finding a therapist is hard. Getting that chemistry with the right person can be difficult. If you're not happy for any reason with the therapist you find through BetterHelp, you can find an additional one for no additional charge. It's a really incredible experience that's available not only on computers, but also on the mobile web and with Android and iOS apps. It's secure, convenient, professional, and most of all, affordable. And to make it truly affordable, BetterHelp is offering something special. Ask Science Mike listeners get 10% off their first month with a discount code of Science Mike. So if you'd like to get started today with the mental health support that can help improve your quality of living, go to betterhelp.com slash sciencemike. You'll fill out a questionnaire to assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash science mic discount code science mic. We also couldn't make science mic without the support of KiwiCo. For you parents out there, I simply love KiwiCo. They're a company that specializes in helping children learn about science technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics through hands-on learning. These Kiwi crates that come in multiple lines that are age-appropriate 
uh, allow children to use all kinds of different learning styles to understand the concepts behind STEAM in a way that is engaging and exciting and frankly, a lot of fun. I have seen my children, both of which who have a lot of natural science and math and art aptitude, see their test scores and their school involvement improve with KiwiCo. But even more than that, I like how they set their phones down when it's time to open a Kiwi crate. This is a hands-on activity. We really enjoy looking at Kiwi crates together in our family common eras. It's something the whole family does together. So if you're interested in helping your child to learn more about science, technology, engineering, and math, just go to kiwico.com slash science to get an exclusive offer for Science Mike Podcast listeners. You can get a free, and I mean absolutely free, crate delivered to your house uh, to check out and uh, I've gotten a lot of great feedback from listeners who've done this. Um, KiwiCo is an amazing sponsor for Ask Science Mike, and I couldn't be more grateful to them. Finally, the most long-standing, most consistently supportive sponsor of Science Mike is you. <laughs> I've got a Patreon page. If you don't know about Patreon, it's kind of like Kickstarter, uh, but it just keeps going. So instead of pledging once for something, you pledge a monthly amount on Patreon. And uh, that is the lifeblood of this podcast. Nothing I do is possible without my patrons on Patreon. And um, you can be one of them if you do that. You get to help shape this show. You get to help create the program to be what it is. Um, you get to select the questions on the show. You basically you, you become in charge of uh, Ask Science Mike. Um, so you can go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Become a Patron button to learn more about Patreon. You can join the people over there. You can start with tiers as low as $1 a month. Every little bit helps. Uh, that's how this show happens. It not only helps you know support me and my family, but helps me uh, pay for the cost of running the show and also compensate the people who put their time in to make Ask Science Mike possible. So uh, thank you if you're already a sponsor of Ask Science Mike, not only to BetterHelp and KiwiCo, but also to you, my patrons on Patreon. If you're not one yet, go check it out. I'd love to see you on Patreon. There's a pretty dramatic spiritual diversity among people who you know listen to ask science mike they're just mm -hmm. just a lot of really different folks um there are some like evangelical christians who listen and there's a very similar number of atheists who listen and there's a uh, uh, pretty much every christian denomination that you can imagine uh shows up in pretty significant numbers um, but we also have a, a greater number of people who aren't sure what they identify at or, uh, positively reject any specific religious affiliation. Uh, the so-called nuns or no spiritual affiliation would, or religious affiliation would be the largest block of listeners of this program. Uh, hmm. so, you know, this book, the view from rock bottom, uh, 
definitely explores suffering, you know, through a lens of, of, of scripture and theology. And there's these themes in the book around the prosperity gospel. And I know that for like 20% of the audience, that's all they need. They're going to Amazon right now and looking up the book. We're going to AskScienceMike.com and looking at this episode where there'll be a link in the show notes. You can click one link and go straight to the book and get it. Uh, but then everybody else is going, wait, what? Why am I even listening to this episode? I was so fascinated <laughs> right. about this story about disability. And now we're talking about all this Jesus stuff again. Uh, I wanted to read, if that's okay with you, a very small excerpt from the book to help frame uh, where you're coming from for people listening to the program. Is that okay with you? Yeah, like that's totally seconds? cool. Okay. Uh, so this is from the book itself. Belief in the prosperity gospel is not always characterized by the stereotypical sense of entitlement to financial wealth. It is far more commonly expressed in the sincerely held belief that making good choices will guarantee a certain level of security and reward. I had to set the book down when I read that. Um, hmm. These days, I'm kind of a really fluffy Episcopal, Episcopalian. <laughs> uh, I've been a Baptist. I've been an atheist. I've been a Methodist these days. I'm a guy that just digs the liturgy for reasons he doesn't understand. And I don't think a lot about the prosperity gospel anymore at all. But when I read those words, I was stunned by how deeply interwoven the ideas of the prosperity gospel are not only in almost every Christian denomination, but also in our approach to capitalism, our approach yes. to secularism. We have this yes. widely held belief that good behavior has merit and merit produces a comfortable lifestyle automatically. And I was so struck right. how in the book, it's not just a um, Christian exploration of the prosperity gospel, but it actually speaks to some of the foundations of certainly an American, but to some degree, the worldview of the entire more developed world. Um, You're making me so happy right now. I literally <laughs> sat in a meeting with the publisher when we were starting the marketing and they were like, if you had any goals, like what's your goal with this book? What do you most want people to get out of it? And I had a couple, but my number one goal was I really don't want to just preach to the choir. My hope here is that a lot of people who don't think they believe the prosperity gospel, people that would say, oh yeah, Joel Austin, that's, you know, that's garbage. And I don't buy that. And I don't think God wants, you know, preachers to have planes or any of that silliness. I want those people to walk away with a new understanding or a new definition for the prosperity gospel and to recognize I would say 95% of us are operating with prosperity gospel theology. It's absolutely yeah. rampant in, especially in Christian churches, but you're right. It's the basis for our capitalist system in this country. I tried very hard to draw some very deliberate lines between that thinking and how it affects me politically as a disabled person. I told a story about 
the way somebody talked about, you know, insure, ha- of asking health insurance companies to insure pre-existing conditions is like asking car insurance companies to insure a junker car that's already been totaled. And, and how dehumanizing it was to sit through that in a church setting, by the way, is where that happened. And I was trying very clearly to draw these lines explicitly, not sort of in a roundabout way where everyone can get what they want to get out of it, but very clearly say, you can't hold these belief systems privately and not have it affect the way you structure society, not have it affect the way you treat the people around you. This isn't a personally held belief that's just about you. There's no way to believe I got what I have in this life because I earned it all. And this is what I deserve without also believing that people that are in systemic poverty, people that are disabled, people that are struggling in whatever form, well, why didn't they make good choices like I did? I now have no empathy for them because I I can't picture a world in which that would have happened to me because as long as you do what you're supposed to do and you behave and you make the correct choices, there's a certain baseline minimum quality of living that you're definitely going to have. Like, sure, bad things might happen to you, but there's still a baseline security of you should have a roof over your head and food and you're not going to be homeless on the street. And in actuality, that's not how life works at all. My story was just sort of a very extreme example of that. But I'm not alone. There are a lot of people who have followed whatever they thought the rules were and done what they're supposed to do, and it didn't work out for them. And not understanding that we all believe some of this prosperity gospel nonsense doesn't allow us to connect to those people, let alone to start looking for solutions. (laughs) So to hear that you got that out of those two sentences, it's like everything I could have asked for in somebody responding to the book. That's exactly what I was hoping someone would walk away with. Hmm. You know, um, you kind of carry that further in chapter eight, um, which is called a declaration of interdependence. And you open with, uh, you don't name names, <laughs> but I immediately knew you talked about a particular okay. form of financial He already blocked me on Twitter. Curriculum. So we're good. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, you know, I, every church I'd ever been in, um, fundamentalist conservative to fluffy progressive protestant they all use this curricula all of yep. them um it's okay with you if i name the curricula i don't like speaking oh that that's fine now <laughs> yeah dave ramsey's in this financial context, sure. university yeah. uh is something i went through uh i used it to get out of debt i used it to uh i've never had a lot of debt until fairly recently uh, but we had a little bit of debt, and I, I, you know, I said, "Well, I want to be able to richly and generously bless people. I want to be a generous person. So, yes, I need to get rid of my debt, and I need to put my financial house in order so I can give away a lot of money." Uh, <laughs> and I, I will say, I, I actually did that. That was my goal. That's yeah. where we went. High income, living in a city with low living expenses, uh, and and I, I've. It felt so good to be the savior of the world financially. I just have to tell you, Mm. Um, I just felt like I was not just a good person, but a holy sanctified person because I was living a good life and God was blessing me for it. And because I was doing the right things and God was blessing me, I was able to 
really fund a lot of charitable work. And uh, then I lost my faith. And I lost uh, any idea that God was blessing me. But in my like atheist worldview, it was still, well, I'm just doing the right things. And that's producing a set of outcomes that mean I'm financially successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if anything, like my prosperity, I think it's an even deeper, more internalized prosperity gospel when God's no longer involved. <laughs> like that's even mm. more like profoundly. I could see I that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's not even God. It's just, no, this is an automatic function of an unaware universe. If you just do things well, then you're fine financially and you can help other people. Uh, and then I, you know, I, I went on a very similar road that you've been on. I, I decided, oh, I think I'll be an author. I think I'll, uh, I think <laughs> I'll make a great money making endeavor. That one. Yeah. So I, I had what, what people would call <laughs> a real job. I was a, I was an executive in a large advertising company and, um, I just wanted to help people. Right. That's what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. So I knew it'd be a little bit of a drop in income or even a dramatic drop in income, but I knew we'd just work it out because I do the right thing. Right. And in time, the money would be there. And, uh, after some time I'd actually, I did build like a viable income, uh, not actually through being an author as much as being a podcaster and a speaker. Uh, and then I, then I started getting sick and, my healthcare exchange insurance was not as good as my corporate health insurance. Mm. And so even though I was still making decent money, um, my healthcare costs, boy, they had no trouble outpacing my income. Yeah. And then, um, my daughter Madison, uh, had anorexia. And the stress of trying to pay for my existing medical costs and fund her health care put me in some pretty bad places emotionally. So I started needing uh, like trauma therapy because some stuff from earlier in life started bubbling up. And then this got into a cycle of, of constant um, emotional dysregulation uh, in a way that was like kind of exciting. Podcast downloads sure went up when I was having mental breakdowns on the air every other week. <laughs> Uh, it was very compelling radio. But then, you know, this led to a cycle where I was, my feelings and my, my self-medicating strategies, primarily uh, through unhealthy eating, were just wrecking my mm. body. And, you know, I end up in the hospital and in an ER. And you know how much it cost to go to the ER and stay overnight a couple yeah. times in the hospital and get all those tests. If you have bad insurance, the insurance company looks at this and says, oh, we're not going to cover any of this until you meet your outrageous deductible. Yeah. And uh, and the next thing I knew, uh, we were just broke, just completely broke. Mm -hmm. And I can remember how many times in my life I'd see someone in dire straits who'd been okay and think they were being tested by God. And I can mm. remember how many times when I got past that and I was an atheist and they would say, well, if they would just focus on the fundamentals, they can work this out. And I'm a 
I think I'm an uncommonly empathetic person. Um, but even I was having those thoughts and it wasn't until I experienced it firsthand that I did everything both Christian theology and American capitalism tell you to do. I work really hard. I, I save a lot of money. I spend very little. I live below my means. Uh, if no matter who you ask by the way of living, I'm fulfilling the Torah, so to speak, <laughs> Yeah. the, the money Torah. And, uh, and the only reason we're not leaving our car right now is because people gave generously to a GoFundMe. That's it. That's yeah. why I'm like, have a, a, a house right now. Um, I'm sure that eighth chapter really, uh, must've hit you hard then is my guess. I have to be honest, that eighth chapter was not what I had originally sold them in the outline. In in the original outline, I can't even remember what it was, but it was something much more upbeat. And it was actually supposed to end on that chapter. It was not supposed to have the final chapter about hope. Um, I added that later. But the eighth chapter was, I think, something about authenticity. And I don't remember. But um I started writing thinking I was going to write the authenticity chapter I had outlined for them. And I just felt like I couldn't walk away leaving the conversation about suffering, about grief, about prosperity gospel theology, about any of it in, in a context where we could make the mistake of making it all personal and individualized and leave it at that. I didn't want to risk that, to put it in sort of like a church Sunday morning context, I didn't want to preach a sermon that was so vague and so niceties that people could just hear what they want to hear and clearly say, well, we're not talking about that, though. Like, it doesn't apply to that, though, because that's half of what I see going wrong and where I see the disconnect right now between evangelicalism and what we see going on politically, when people are around us saying, I just don't understand how we got there. I don't understand how they can support that. I do. I can totally understand it because this theology of suffering stuff, we've gotten this wrong for so long. And this prosperity gospel thinking is so infected our belief systems. It's not a stretch for me to see how we got here. This is the logical outpouring of this kind of thinking. And I felt like I couldn't do the book justice if I didn't take a chapter and dig in in a very tangible, logical, no dancing around this, I'm clearly saying what I'm saying, where I put this in context and say, this, this affects how we treat each other. This affects how we vote. This affects what we feel like we owe our neighbor. And this affects where we see ourselves in systems of, you know, as I put in that chapter, givers and takers and who's who's the generous giver and who's that needy taker over there and how we see things like when we talk about the poor, who is the poor and what does that have to do with me? Are those those people that are over there so that I can give to them and that shows how charitable I am or shows how good God is or is it something deeper than that? I just didn't think I could do the message justice without making these points relevant 
to someone who might be able to bury it under, I don't know, the assumption that this is just about how my personal relationship with Jesus, as evangelicals would put it. So I turned that chapter in, not completely sure my publisher was going to go for it. My publisher is a little bit more conservative than I am, to put it lightly. And I was very afraid that I would get pushed back on that one and they would say I had taken it a little bit too far. Um, I did have one editor, not my primary editor, but a copy editor along the way who wanted me to remove those references to Dave Ramsey because she felt like people are going to know who you're talking about and that might make them uncomfortable. And I basically wrote a note back that said, I'm very okay with them being uncomfortable. That's what I'm going for. So let's go ahead and leave that in. And if Dave Ramsey wants to take it up with me, he's more than welcome. He's blocked me on all my social media channels, so I'm not sure where he'll get a hold of me, but I'm here if he wants to chat. So let's just leave it in. But that chapter, honestly, the seventh and eighth chapters are probably my favorite two chapters in the whole book. So I'm really glad they left it in. But it's huge for me to hear that that it was so impactful and meaningful to you because I was concerned. I'm not going to lie. You're my friend, so I can say this to you. <laughs> uh, I was a little bit concerned that you might not actually like my book in the end. <laughs> I You've been so supportive all along the way. And I'm very public on, on Twitter and Facebook about what I believe about things. But the book, like you said, it is written from a very clearly Christian context. And as much as I don't consider myself a part of evangelical culture anymore, his fingerprints are still all over there. That's still the background I come up in. Uh, And so I made some very deliberate choices in the way that I wrote the book that I wanted it to be approachable content for evangelicals. I did not want to just preach to the choir, if you will, of people who already agree with me. I wanted to say some things that I hope would resonate with people who are still evangelicals. Um, And so I was afraid that by making those choices that I might have written a book that was not quite as accessible to people who maybe don't have such positive feelings about that culture or who are coming at things from a different angle. And so it helps to hear that somebody that I know and respect who's very much a logical thinker uh, could find so much meaningful content in the book and not feel like it was over-spiritualized or an over-Jesus-y answer for everything because that's everything I was trying, you know, to get away from with this book, but I wasn't entirely sure how successful I would be. I don't know if that's just, you know normal author fears of never knowing if you've communicated clearly enough what your goal was, but it helps to hear that someone I respect that I do not consider, you know, Jesus-y evangelical all the time still (laughs) felt like there was a lot of meaningful content in the book that spoke to them on an emotional level. You know, I I know it drives people crazy, but I really do uh, feel like I am both a Christian and an atheist. <laughs> no I'm one, cool none with of the it. We're like good. It when I say it. None of the atheists like it when I say it, but it's because I have a a brain-centered understanding of spirituality. And I just understand that yeah. I have some networks in my brain that process the world with a materialist atheist worldview. And I have other circuits in my brain uh, that very much process things the way that Christians do. And those 
those might be logically mutually exclusive, but they are not neurologically mutually exclusive. Mm. And so what I would say is the Christian in me uh, really enjoyed a thoughtful execution of you know what an evangelical would call a high view of scripture hmm. um because so often people with a quote high view unquote view, view of scripture produce really harmful ideas into the world and so that was actually really redemptive for me to read but then the atheist in me was able to read critically and say well this is a person who values a book that maybe you don't value as much anymore which is also kind of bullshit. I'm a daily Bible reader again, right? I just don't say that publicly because right. I don't make my non-religious listeners uncomfortable. Um, but I, I'm a daily Bible reader again. And um, the atheist in me saw these larger themes about society. Whether people identify as Christians or not in the West, they're shaped by Christian thinking and Christian theology, including yes. secularists and atheists. And yes. I think we, and I'm going to count myself as a secularist for a moment, uh, we ignore that at our peril. And so I so appreciate people like you who are unapologetically Christian, but who approach this ancient tradition with some acknowledgement of its roots as something that came out of marginalized communities and mm -hmm. who can hold to you know, Christian theological tenets in a way that produces more flourishing in the world uh, and not create some kind of artificial divide between the elect hmm. and the unelect. So for everyone listening, all of my friends, whether you are a secularist or a Christian, you know, whether you are, are evangelical or a mainline Protestant or Catholic, or whether you don't express any specific religious affiliation anymore, I just can't recommend the view from rock bottom enough to you because it so honestly and eloquently and beautifully confronts our widely held notions of what it means to be a good person and our relationship to money and to resources. And I truly believe that the more people who read this book the better the world we live in will become. Stephanie, where can people connect with you if they want to learn more? Uh, my website is stephanietatewrites.com. Tate is T-A-I-T. -T. That's my Canadian husband's fault. Don't look at me. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of got links to everywhere else. Uh, I'm on Twitter quite a bit as Steph Tate writes. That's where I keep my feistier opinions that I don't necessarily want sharing with, you know, aunt so-and-so or the members of my church that follow me. Uh, so if you want the tamer version, you can follow me on Facebook. I don't have a page <laughs> on Facebook yet. I'm still working on it. And I say tamer, but I still get in trouble on Facebook quite a bit. I just save the really feisty stuff for Twitter. It's sort of the rough cut stuff. Uh, so you can search for me on Facebook, Stephanie Tate, T-A-I-T. -I, I still don't have a page. I'm working on it. Uh, but you can just send me a follow request there. Uh, that's pretty much the best places. Thank you so much for taking time today. I know what doing all these interviews costs because I, I do a lot of podcast interviews myself. 
And I'm so honored that you spent this time with us today. Thank you. Thanks. You know, I really hope that you've enjoyed this interview with Stephanie Tate. I'd love to know what you thought about it. Um, send me a message on social media. Uh, if you enjoyed this show, you know, I, I'm always trying to make what you like. And uh, often, Ask Science Mike is the sound of one hand clapping. So if you want to go on social media, tell me if you like this episode. It'll help me know if you want to hear more interviews in the future. I want to thank uh, uh, all my patrons on Patreon for making Ask Science Mike possible at all. Thank you for your longstanding and consistent support. I have been so pleased to see the, uh, the recent increase in in patrons and uh, patron amounts. I guess it's almost like if I make the podcast regularly, <laughs> that helps. Uh, jokes aside, though, you all have no idea what you mean to me. I'd like to thank uh, Caitlin Hermstad for producing Ask Science Mike. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for sound designing and producing Ask Science Mike. I'd like to thank Jeb Botterford for writing that wonderful theme song that I still love. And I'd like to thank you all for listening. I can't wait to talk to you next week. Oh,